Welcome to the Fun Engagement Pod from Fun Insights, bringing you insights straight from the experts. You can join the Fun Engagement Network at funinsights.co.uk and we'll let you know when new episodes come out. We're also on Acast, Google, Apple and all major podcasting platforms. This stuff is the future. 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 Episode 19 of the Fan Engagement Pod has something for everyone at every level. An absolutely fascinating chat with Chief Executive of Ebbsfleet United Football Club, Damien Irvine. He started out in sport with an existential challenge as chairman of his own Cronulla Sharks in Australian Rugby League and is now Chief Executive of Ebbsfleet United in the National League South via turnaround jobs at Notts County and Wickham Wanderers. He's got a great story to tell, a lot of wisdom for anyone working at any level in almost any sport. He's clearly a very good strategist because he understands its relationship with tactics and delivery. He also says that sincerity on the part of those in charge at a club is a big part of how fan engagement should be delivered. He champions what he calls above the line and below the line behaviour for everyone in and around a club, whether fans, staff or players. He took over first at Cronulla when his childhood club was in financial trouble, rebuilding its financial and reputational position. He has since had spells at Notts County after the Munto finance crisis, turning it around the club there, and at Wickham after a change of ownership there. He recently took over at Ebbsfleet after a difficult period for the owner. Don't forget you can join the Fan Engagement Network at faninsights.co.uk forward slash network forward slash join. Okay, Damien, um, you're the only person I've interviewed so far that's got your own wiki, Wikipedia page, so it's been quite easy to easy to read you uh, read up on you. Um, you've had an interesting journey, like most people I speak to. Um, most people I speak to have come through interesting routes to get where they are. Um, you're no different, and in fact, in terms of English football, you are rather distinct. So, do you want to just tell me a little bit about your background and what what led you? to where you are now, which is the Chief Executive of Ebsley United Football Club. Yes, so I am um, first, my first foray into into sports administration, as we call it in Australia at home, was with um, actually the club that I was a lifelong fan of, you know, so I was a, a very involved and engaged supporter and sponsor um, of the Cronulla Sharks in the top tier of the NRL there in Australia, in a, a club leading up to 2009, when I, I took over as chairman, um, had various um, uh, problems um, over its, its, its relatively young history as a rugby league club in Australia. Um, and it had various um, incidences of, of, of public scandal um, from player behaviour, coach behaviour, CEO behaviour, um, and, and all with the, the overriding continual um, every five to seven years you know, threat of administration and liquidation um, from, from financial issues. So it, it had been a club that, Funnily enough, now looking back, was not dissimilar to what so many of our fellow supporters and 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 people, industry participants, find in in English football. Um, so I was I was heavily involved um, in the club, as I said, as a supporter and with a supporters group and as a sponsor. And the club was really friendless in in mid two thousand and nine. Um, it was a lot of those scandals and the constant um, you know highlighting of these scandals had become 
they come out of the sport pages and were front page in 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 week at weeknight magazine style current affairs exposes. I mean, seriously, um, you know, doorstop sort of stuff. And it was it was alarming to the wider community. Um, and it really it was it was very difficult for the club at the time because not only was it friendless from a PR point of view, um, it was uh, it, it had you know it was losing three and a half million Australian a year in in in, in uh, operating losses, and it, it had about fifteen million of borrowings to the bank in, in on land assets that were worth around six million. It wasn't a very good proposition, and it didn't have cash flow. And so when these crises happen, um, sometimes if you've got a good bank behind you and a, a good load of money, it's easier to navigate. You know reputational crisis in an organisation. Um, the club wasn't in that position. And also it was in an environment where there was a, a push, I guess, for rationalisation within the Sydney Basin, which had sort of eight or nine of these top tier clubs, not dissimilar to a London sort of situation. Uh, but the sport was looking to expand and, and get away from its traditional um, oversupply, I guess. So it's a very threatening position for the club. Um, and it was friendless. And I sort of Put my hand up to help um, clubs in Australia and the, the Sharks uh, majority wise are supporter owned really they're membership owned uh, the membership buys a, a yearly ongoing membership and they can vote for their elected uh, custodians I guess um, so I put my, my head forward for that um, what you get for, for getting that right is not dissimilar to a German situation where you, you're a formal director of the company with company's house or the equivalent in Australia ASIC. Um, you take on all the liabilities, all the uh, liability indemnities for insolvent trading, for example, or or, or those obligations. So um, I went in and, and in, the, in the first few weeks, the place continued to unravel and what was behind what I knew was going to be a, a very tough job. Um, soon proved to be, you know, a near impossible job, if I'm honest. It was really uh, a club with very little resource. The, the staff that were there were, were bullied and beaten um, into submission. Um, the supporters were embarrassed for their club and it was really rock bottom. So um, that was my first foray into, I guess, then what I thought was as a sponsor and supporter going in to help and use my expertise from the, from the business world um, really became a, a full-time um, hands-on rescue job and the more and longer I was there um, the less I was able to extract from it even if I wanted to because um, the result would have been catastrophic that it was a do or, or die situation so we managed um, over four years and, and they went pretty quickly uh, but we managed to to turn the club around crystallized some land assets the club had into a large development which saw the debts repaid um, all this was done without any working capital. It was done on, on promises and convincing banks to give us another Monday and another Monday and another Monday. And um, eventually we, we turned the club around. So um, prior to, um, to me leaving in 2013, I'd actually had um, contact. With, once we got the property deal all done there and the club was financially saved, which I think most journalists and most pundits and other clubs in the NRL at the time um, they, they were quite open in saying we were dead and we were a lost cause. So it was a great satisfaction for all those people involved in a hardcore group of supporters who volunteered their time, put their arms around staff and myself, you know, at late at night and say, you know, thank you, keep going, we're with you and finding their own time to keep supporting and travel and to lobby the government when we needed it for land approvals and a, a really 
in hindsight, a really beautiful demonstration of what the strength of, of, of a desperate club can do and the, re the real people who, who care and dig in. And so we built a bit of a reputation because the, in 2012, um, much to the consternation of some of our biggest attractors, we'd, we'd survived and we actually were, were flourishing financially and had a great future. Um, and I'd had, I'd had some contact from, uh, from clubs over here about maybe coming and getting involved in English football. Uh, one club was just finalising a large stadium move um, and they were looking for someone to operate that and oversee that. But I, I was in a position at the time where we'd gone through all of the hard, dirty, difficult, sleepless nights to get the club to a stable and, and a glowing future. Um, and so I'd not considered it at all, Kevin, to, to, um, to, to, to up sticks and move to London. In the start of 2013, there was a massive a very public, again, um, crisis in Australian sport. Uh, it was the, an Asada scandal, which is the, the WADA, Drugs in Sport, governing body. Um, and there'd been a practitioner who'd been, been working with AFL, Aussie Rules Clubs in Victoria, who'd started to infiltrate and get involved by volunteering his services to a number of NRL clubs um, on the proviso of working with, you know, GPS systems and all of that. But pretty soon... Um, what had happened was he'd started to get more involved in um, pushing the envelope in terms of supplementation and rehabilitation of players. And we, this broke at the start of 2013 and we'd just come out of a very, you know, four years of a great rebuild and, and um, our club was linked by name to, to this guy. And I was pretty adamant that we had no, no, no contact at all because one, we couldn't afford, an extra cup of coffee, you know, during those last four years, let alone extra supplementation programs or, or you know, cutting edge sports science programs. So um, I'd got some undertakings at the time from the coach um, who I employed. I made him head coach from assistant um, and the football operations manager who I gave the sort of football department to um, with great trust um, as to whether we, we had any involvement or anything to worry about. And um, I was told absolutely not, you know, the guy had, he, he visited the club twice and um, he, he'd done some, some computer calibration for them, but, you know, he, he never went near a player and, and it wasn't an issue. Um, within the space of, of 10 days, that all proved to be quite wrong. And um, it, it occurred in 2011, so three years prior, two years prior to when we were talking, um, that this guy had been in the club and um, there'd been all sorts of arguments and, and, and issues around him between the football staff. They agreed to keep it all quiet and eventually got rid of him after six or eight weeks, which is very different to, to what I'd been sort of told. So it was pretty clear as this all blew up that um, uh, we had a real problem at the club, I think, and uh, I'm a very honest person and I believe in duty of care and it was pretty clear that there'd been a duty of care failing, duty of care failing um, at the time. And um, so we made pretty tough decisions, you know, the, the, the week before the first game of the season to, um, to stand down those people that were involved. Um, you know, and you know, you know sport, Kevin, you know football and the coaching staff and all that are all great guys and the fans love them and they're good working class people and they're very popular and they play the media very well. And when, when suits or, or, the, or the board start to um, stand them down without being able to go fully into the detail and all of that. You, there's only one one side that's going to win that, you know, groundswell of support. And it was pretty clear that I'd, I'd lost the room, so to speak, in terms of not wanting... I didn't want to 
we'd rebuild the club out of all the trauma and issues before 2009 on governance, transparency and, and working above the line and a zero tolerance on cover-ups and a zero tolerance on, um, on, the, on the mucky stuff that had gone on before. It was the only way the club could rebuild any sort of faith in the commercial market, trust with the fans. So um, I, wasn't, I wasn't in a position then to sort of go on, which was quite heartbreaking and I stood down from the club. Um, very high pressure time, I, I, you know, it had a great personal effect on me. And, um, you know, and, and I cracked under pressure a few times with the media because you couldn't, you couldn't say things that you needed to say, but you were copying all of the, all the bad stuff. And um, now, you know, I think the time of the club is remembered as a time of great change and also one that probably saved the club. And, and that's not on me personally, that's on a, as I said before, that great group, amazing group of supporters and staff and volunteer directors who, who did a magnificent job. So I um, I then was at a bit of a loose end for 2013 and did some consulting, but I uh, I um, I took a call from, from uh, the UK uh, uh, of a club that had some problems. It was on a rebuild um, and it needed a similar sort of change in culture and a change in belief that we can just do it. We have to do it. Um, to to um, to Cronulla Sharks and um, and that was with Notts County uh, who had just come out of the Munto era where they'd had a fail takeover. Um, a good a good chairman had come in and, and tried to save that club at the time, but again not dissimilar to myself at Cronulla, you know, going into a club and saying obviously it's got problems and I'm here to try and save it with my experience is very different once you get the keys and look in the door and look under the bonnet so to speak of what the reality is and. And um, the chairman there is a good, a good man and he did a good job um, and he needed some help um, commercially. So I came over and um, it was my first foray into English football. I'd, I'd, I'd always been a football man growing up, um, but it was really interesting and a great club and a really good time. And uh, we had some, some great success there, I guess, in, in just getting the fans back on board. And when I say that, they're so committed, Notts County fans, like so many clubs fans, but they'd been let down greatly in trust, I think, through the Manto period. They felt embarrassed, um, like a lot of fans do, because they're very proud of their clubs and they don't like their club being the subject of derision and, the, and of being the subject of being mocked. Um, so they, they felt a little bit disenfranchised. The club was on the way to um, the relegation in 2013-14. Um, Sean Derry had been bought in with Greg Abbott and was doing a great job um, in but still it was looking like a relegation year. But the club needed revenue, it needed to change things. And so we, we put together some great fan engagement work around the bench program, which was a season ticket program, which was, um, we were lucky enough to, to, to win an award there for that. Out of all the clubs of premiership and championship in, the, in that year in English football. And that was really around getting fans to remember why they love coming to the football outside of the result. Because I think all fans are pretty pragmatic and they, they know you can't win every game. They like to see certain qualities displayed, win, lose or draw in their team. Uh, they like to be treated with respect and have a nice warm cup of tea and not given lukewarm muck. And they like to, you know, generally have a good, a good day. But we delve deeply into what, what it was, the smell of the ball, the smell of the cut grass in summertime, the fact they'd been there you know, 180 times with their granddad, you know, over the years or, or, or the people that sit next to them and now they know and they can speak to. So we played on that, Kevin, and we, we built around that and because trying to convince fans to reinvest 
in a season when you don't know if you're going to be relegated yet and it's been a pretty poor season is very difficult. But clubs need the revenue and they need to do that. So you need to, we needed to, to go outside of that and say, look, win, lose or draw, you're very important. And, and I think the things you get from your sport are important. So, so let's support. And we increased season tickets greatly even before the, um, the end of the season. We managed to stay up on the last day of the year for a great management performance from, from Sean Derry and a, and a great performance from all the teams. So um, that all happened. Then there was some, some changes, I guess, in the, uh, the, the the relationship of the, the chairman and um, some personal stuff there. And, um, you know, his wife came in and, and went into the CEO role of the club. And, um, you know, in, I don't think finances are quite as strong as they could have been potentially. So um, it was, it was a coming to an end, I think, for me there, because you sort of get that bounce, you get that change. Um, and it's very hard to then maintain that. Um, at a club that's not quite sure where it wants to go. And unfortunately, the club had some 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 down years since then. But, and I really hope for the supporters of that club, appear to be, as we speak now, you know, a very good chance of those playoffs taking place and getting back into the league. And I, I think it would be highly deserved for those supporters who, after that particular chairman, had a, a you know, you know, a David Brent style ownership for a little while, I think you could say, safe to say, and it didn't go so well. So <laughs> that all happened. And then um, uh, Wickham, Wickham Wanderers um, got in touch and uh, I had a, uh, someone there knew of me, uh, a great man, actually, Ian Ridley, who's one of the, one of the great sport writers in this country and a fantastic human. Um, He'd recommend they talk to me. He, he knew the chairman quite well um, because, again, another club that uh, proudly supporter-owned uh, and, and a great club. And it had had some ownership troubles um, and got left, as often clubs do after an ownership uh, leaves, with a whole lot of contracts, a whole lot of outgoings and very little money to do that, to, 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 to fund it with. So I, um, I went down there because they were a year out of a... A, a fan takeover really they they took it back in and as as is generally the case there kevin revenues really need attention in the commercial aspects of it from a supporter point of view um and andrew howard uh, went in and took over his chairmanship and and i went down supporter owned so very much back into my comfort zone from the australian model um in terms of reporting to a, a board and we needed to get that place going and, and we did i, I probably worked there with one of the best, I think, operators in the game um, that I've met and in other sports around the world in Matt Cecil. He's a, he's a fantastic media manager and marketeer um, and he, he runs that club very, very well um, and he's a fan for life. Um, and, and so really intrigued me working with him and I take a lot out of that because he, like most of us who have been fans and gone into administration, He's, he's had to learn and he's, he's probably my inspiration. I look to him to see how you juggle that heart versus head decision every day um, because no one is more passionate than him as a supporter down there. But he's been through numerous uh, ownership changes. It's gone back in private ownership now and he balances um, the, the heart and head beautifully and he's an ultimate professional. We had a great three years there and, um, you know, a, a promotion was achieved up from League Two to League One. Um, that was really exciting for me working in that environment because um, the budget, the playing budget is purely and wholly reflective of what you bring in commercially and, and from a, you know, 
every penny you can save becomes your, your bottom line. So we did a good job there and, and it was a great time, a really good time. Um, and then I, I sort of got lured back to, to rugby league, being from the top tier in Australia and that you get, you get, uh, you get spoken to a very big club in rugby league, um, the Bradford Bulls in Yorkshire has, has um, probably one of the worst reputations in the last 10 or 15 years since their glory days in terms of ownership. It has been an administration three or four times. It's, it is a, it, you know, it's funny, Kevin, the, the bigger clubs and the bigger brands that have the ability to turn over the most cash and get the most revenue from supporters generally over time attract some of the least um, salubrious style ownership. People that you might not want running your club really want to be running those sort of clubs because of the, the numerous turnovers, the fact they don't maybe have to put too much into their own pocket. They can get the fans to do that. Um, they can play off the success and popularity of the brand. And, and that's where the Bradford Bulls were. And they were in a very bad spot in the start of 16, actually, while I was still at Wickham. And they were looking to go into liquidation um, and, and, and finally finish it all. And I worked uh, with an organisation then, Supporters Direct, who were, were, were getting into rugby league a little bit. Um, but I put together with another guy, good guy, Richard Lamb, uh, a proposal to take the club out from the administrators in the fan ownership model. Because our view was a club that's had four or five poor ownerships to date and it's gone into administration needs to look at consolidating it in a, in a pretty simple way. The best way to do that when you've got a club with a big turnover is to um, you know, set your budgets, trade well, be honest, and then what you've got extra is your playing budget of the year. And I think the Bulls would have been really well run like that and done well. So we put a really good proposal to buy that out of, out of um, administration at the time. Um, unfortunately, the, the RFL made a decision to go with a, a consortium backed by the, the current CEO of the, the RFL, would you believe? And, uh, and, 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 and they took that over and um, good guys came up from New Zealand to run it, but again, a private model. Um, and I, I stayed on, I went back up and helped them out because I felt that if you're gonna bid for a club as a supporter ownership and you're gonna bid because you think the fans need it well run, um, when the RFL rang me and said, look, I know you've missed out on the bid, but would you, be, would you consider going and helping these guys need help in getting this right. Um, I think it would have been quite disingenuous had I knocked that back, having tried to get it on a platform of really caring, which I did. Um, so I went up to help them out. And um, unfortunately, it, it didn't work out there uh, towards the end. And another ownership was, was seen to be lacking um, and seemed to be just like the other couple before it. Um, and the club nearly went into administration late last year. During that time though, the, the model uh, was pretty clear what Bradford was crying out for. It needs a multi-use stadium. Uh, Bradford City are a great club. They've got stadium problems coming up in terms of leaseholds and things. Uh, Oddsall is a great stadium that's poorly neglected and has a bad ownership model that doesn't work quite well between the council and the RFL and, um, and the club. So um, I started to put together and I'd, I'd worked a little with David Baldwin at the time, um, who's a good guy. And we tried to, to put solutions to the club and to the council around a, you know, a Bradford stadium that, and a rebuild of Oddsall that might work. But a part of that 
was multi-sport models and Bristol Sport are doing a great job of it. Club Doncaster are doing a great job of it. It's very much a German model where, you know, HSV Hamburg have the handball team, the netball team, the basketball team and the football team. And, and there's a lot to be said for that in modern age because in these cities where austerity is running rife um, and, and there isn't the money to go around for every single sport to have their own gym, their own high performance centre, their own pitches, their own stand, multi-sport models are smart and they can work if done, if done correctly. So we delved into that quite deeply and the, the owner of Bradford Park Avenue National League North Club was doing it tough financially and, and, it, and it, we, we talked to him at the Bulls about us managing that club for him to try and use some shared services and to try and bring a clubs, which funnily enough, started out as the one club. Uh, they started out um, as a rugby club and then Bradford Park Avenue went off and became a football club. We're talking over 100 years ago. So there was a synergy there and we tried to look into it. Um, unfortunately, it, it, it didn't work. I don't think that the money from the Bulls and, and, and the ownership wasn't really there to progress it well with the right intent, I don't think. Um, and, and Bradford Park Avenue um, didn't really, weren't really open to it. I think they were really very proud of being a football club and you need it. You need some, a very pragmatic approach and a very open-minded approach to start to merge clubs into that. And it, it didn't quite get off the ground, but they're doing okay now and putting a new pitch in and, and they've got their own way to go, which is good. So, so that all happened. And then um, I, I'd, I'd got a call. I, I, there was a bit of a pattern emerging in case you hadn't seen Kevin of, of sort of, you know, difficult jobs and, 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 and clubs that really need some close attention um, to what I was going into. And that takes its toll. It's, it is hard. And when it's not working, like it wasn't really at Bradford Park Avenue with that arrangement with the Bulls, it's, it's tiring. It has a physical and, 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 a, and a, an emotional effect on you because it's your job. It's your day-to-day -day job. So I was looking for, you know, for my next uh, next venture. And, and I got a call um, in February um, around, uh, around Ebbsfleet and whether or not I'd be interested in coming and helping at Ebbsfleet and, and, and taking on the role. And I did my research and um, it's a club that's got a good owner, um, but an ownership that over the seven years since it owned the club has had its ups and downs with fans. There'd, there'd been a, a trust gap between the fans and the owner. Um, when I investigated that on arriving here, um, nobody could really put their hand on exactly that was. There'd been late payments of players, but there'd always been payments and there'd be 100% payments to creditors and pay players. Um, there was, a, there was a quite a cultural disconnect I found between the supporters and the club and why that was the case, why payments were late, what was the structure, how do we solve that? So it was very interesting for me to come in and, and, um, and learn that. I'm still learning that. Obviously, after a few weeks, we had lockdown and um, so that we're sort of going for a second restart almost of my, my time here. Um, but that is, you know, quite a long-winded answer, I know. But that's my uh, my summary of how I sort of landed. I did, Damien, I asked and you gave me the answer, so I don't agree with you for it. The thing that's, um, that the, 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 there are a few big themes here, and I'll just sort of try and get through them. Um, it strikes me that the first question to ask, and it might actually tease out the answer to all the things I'm curious about, is... What's the sort of the theme you you talked about this term sincerity before, and you can't run you can't run um, anything on just a concept or an idea or a sort of an emotion or, or or what have you. There's lots of things to build around it, but you've talked about this thing about sincerity, and you know 
what what does that actually mean how you know when when you when you go into a place where um trust is at a premium which is a big thing fan engagement if you can't if, if there's no trust then what you're doing is a load of tactics you're not really doing fan engagement trust is has to be the fundamental so how do you how do you deal with that from wherever from Cronulla to Notts County to to you know to Wickham to where you are now how do you do that how do you create that because that doesn't just arrive with you it has to be built into the culture and then built out into the structure to some extent yeah I think the key for, for me and and is is, is it I've got an inbuilt empathy for it, Kev, because I, when I went into Cronulla, um, I understood that. I, I empathised with the supporters and I knew because I'd shared their frustrations about what I wanted from the club. And one thing I always used to look at, and I think fans, and when you really understand what gets fans riled up, is even your best manager, your most popular manager, your best, most popular long-term player, um, and even getting down to staff at the club, most of the time, they've got a choice. They can be there or not. They can go and work for another club up the road. They can go off and get a rival offer if they're a player. They can go and leave the sport and go and work in a car shop if they wanted, if they're working in the club. So it was that that thing where they could always walk out and they often do. Fans don't have that luxury. And I felt that at Cronulla. I didn't have the luxury after 12 weeks of realising what a cluster it was. Um, I didn't have the opportunity to go, do you know what, I, I shouldn't have put my hand up for this. I'm going to go back to my other business and live a comfortable life. Because it, I cared so much. And that's, that's these fans of every club I've been into, and I think what allows for that sincerity is you, you know they don't have a choice. I can leave and walk away, that, but if whatever I leave next week, they're going to have to pick the pieces up and it's going to hurt them and they're going to sacrifice to do that. And so I understand that and, and I'm a very big believer in the two to three to four years after you leave a club as administrator is what you should be judged on along with, with what you do. Um, and I think, you know, Wickham have had a great couple of years since I left. You've, you've got to go in and do the hard work and you've got to be, you can't be too proud. You've got to be prepared to take the hits and do the unpopular stuff. Um, you know, Cronulla won their first ever premiership, you know, two or three years after I'd left. And sometimes you've got to clear up the muck and be that person. It's not enjoyable. And it's not always being Mr. Popular with the supporters because that's not what they often need. But you've got to be sincere in doing that. And if that means telling them that at the moment your expectations are a little unrealistic, not your fault, but we're not where you wanted to be at the moment and it's going to take a year or two to get there, that's, in, that's sincerity. Nobody's asking for a magic potion. And fans don't want to have BS blown up their you-know-whats all the time. Right. They, they hear it so much. Right, Damien, there's a just an important point there. Quite often, in fact, I would say way more often than what you said, the precise opposite gets said. And that's that, I don't know, fans want success all the time. Now, what I've found is that 
the first thing fans want is to know that their club's being looked after properly and being run well. And they don't like that business where their their name, you know, their club's name is mud. They don't like it. Yet you're saying to me, no, 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 that's not how fans, you know, you're, you're saying to me that no fans, what fans want is not what large parts of the industry say fans want. So why, why is it when the evidence all stacks up to say, no, 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 fans aren't, they don't all leave their brains in a jar at the door when they walk into the football club. They do understand things. Why is it that the opposite story seems to get told so often that fans are essentially irresponsible and, and don't really think about the consequences of demanding their best players? Well, we're an emotional, it's an emotional business and it's emotional sport and this is their lives, supporters' lives. And I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that fans don't have very short memories. No. And, and, and fans forget where they were six months ago, heading into administration, for example, or whatever. And then, you know, you have a fan forum and the first question is, we need a 25-goal-a-year striker, spend some money. That, that is how it happens. It does. And it's because they love the sport and it's because they have short memories. And you, there's a time to correct that. And the time isn't to correct that on Twitter when they say, where they're having a go at you or where they're in a, a, a stadium yelling at you saying spend more money. That's not the time to engage supporters. That's when emotions are high. But if you communicate with them regularly, you explain to them where the, the finances are, what the plan is and how you're measuring against that month on month, you know, then the undertone, the, the, the constant undertow of this conversation, they get subconsciously, they go, well, they're pretty conservative, but we're in good hands. They get that and they start to build the trust. But you can't, where you lose trust really quickly, it's all about setting expectations. And if I come out now and I say, we're relegated into National League South more likely than not, but we're going to steamroll and we're bouncing straight back up. If I tell them that, then they have every right next March when we're eighth and just missing out on the playoffs or whatever, if that's what happens, to have a go at me and say, we don't trust you because you've set an expectation which is unrealistic. So sincerity is about clubs understanding and managing fan expectations. And, and if fan expectations are measured and budgeted because they've been told the right information, then you can only ever impress them because you can only beat them. And if you fail below those expectations with all the information that's at hand and, and you've got it wrong, then you have to put your hand up and say you've got it wrong. But by saying we're going to be X, Y, Z and we're going to be great and finances are perfect when they're not, uh, pretty soon fans just won't have a bar of you and nor should they. Okay, then tell me, um, tell me about, um, there, there is a, a fashion and it probably exists in most sports, in lots of sports. There's a fashion around um, or a, a tendency, I think, to... Um, elevate players and managers to a position where they kind of are the identity of the football club. Now, obviously, everyone in every sport um, who follows a club, will there'll be legends in their club, you know, there'll be managers and players. Um, how much of, um, of, of, I suppose, the responsibility, how much of, how, or, I'm trying to phrase this, phrase this well, or phrase this in the right way. What I, what I often find is that, I suppose similar to what you're saying, we, you know, if you're getting relegated, then the worst thing you can do is set unreasonable expectations and say we're going to bounce straight back. 
I've 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 identified and again it's not I haven't done a piece of research and I've got the evidence and here's the statistics for it but I observe that quite often you find managers um, almost they almost become the vessels for engagement as though their role in the football club is so you know it's so all-encompassing that they become as long as you've got a good manager in then everything's okay once you remove that then um, you know, it's like the Wizard of Oz and you've got the little man behind the green curtain. How, how, how often do you find that, you know, the sort of the substance and the structure of fan engagement is just chucked into a vessel named success on the pitch and everything's chucked through, put through the manager and through the players. And then when that falls, you know, away goes, well, you know, the, the carpet's yanked away. Yeah, you're 100% right. And um it's like, you know, you, you appoint a new lead singer to the band and you're going to write number one hits all of a sudden. And, and if it's not a good band, you're not going to sell number one hits. Don't matter if you bring in Axl Rose or Freddie Mercury. So, and I think we do fall into that, that trap where, you know, a good manager appointment, all supporters and staff are banging from the rooftops. We're saved. We're up. We're going up. And, and that's the culture. And that's certainly what the media is designed to promote because, there's a reason why managers have to talk to, you know, fans after every game and we want to hear from managers. But when you're, when you're forming the most important recruitment uh, tool in your club as being setting the agenda, as that person has to set the culture, the structure, the agenda, the expectations, everything, to me, that's the wrong way around. And you've gone about it the wrong way because yes, you need a great managerial appointment, but what I've learned recently particularly is so often the, the level of analytical research, scouting, market research, canvassing of markets for the whole talent pool that goes into recruiting a right back for most clubs from the top down or your goalkeeper or your left-sided midfielder. There's a great deal of analytical culture in football around that, whether it be football manager driven or whatever, even the best supporters have, have a great expertise in being able to tell you who the best three in that league are or might suit. And, and there's a great depth in that. It might be a surprise to hear, mate, and, and, and supporters might be surprised to hear, it's very rare, very rare for that same approach and detail to be entered into when appointing the manager. It's so often, he's available, he did a good job there, let's grab him. He's good over there, let's grab him. He's a former player and the fans love him, let's have him. And I don't mean to be flippant about it, but that's reality. So we've got this weird situation where, you know, the, the depth of your big spend expenditure and the risk mitigation around that, around getting your striker in and all this, and it's great research most clubs go into, I don't, in my experience, is not generally reflected in that most important appointment that you've outlined. And so when we made a managerial change in, in the closed season, it was because for no other reason that 
the club had fell into managers. It had made usual suspect appointments over three or four years. It had invested heavily and not really got the results out of that. And to be fair, most of those managerial appointments, not the last one, but prior, ended in tears, you know, with the club falling out with them and moving on and, and short-term appointments made instantly. So there was a real lack of depth of process and thought into that appointment. It's not to say it couldn't have been the right appointment, but it would have been needed to be more luck than good process and management to get the right appointment. So we went the other way and did a full review, a full analytical approach into what qualities and what the club needed first in an individual. And then we went and profiled that and found an individual. Um, so I, I think you're right, you know, getting a big personality in, um, I don't know that does great things for fan engagement and fan expectations because the first thing people see is, wow, there's a big name. I'd much prefer supporters, and I think supporters deep down should expect and want the standard to be, we know that structure and the reasoning behind that appointment is strong. So we don't know if that means a promotion, and we don't know, and we don't know what that means, but we know that there's been no stone left unturned in finding the right person. So we're, we're mitigating the risk. And I always say, you know, judge the result of the decision, not the decision. And that's all you can do. Okay, I've got a couple more areas that I just wanted to sort of touch on. One is, um, and we're in that region now, st structure versus culture. Um, could you just explain which belongs where? What comes first? Or is it a case of... Um, they're both hand in hand, um, you know, because lots of people uh, will talk about structure being vital to it. And sometimes that is important because it's about the way you're actually owned as a football club or a club, rugby league club. Um, the way you're owned as a club then allows you to set a certain type of culture. Or is it that you need to get in there and start challenging and changing a culture before you can start creating the kind of structure you want? Um, and you know, and I am really talking. Obviously, again, I'm I'm trying to bring it back to fan engagement, because that is something that both of those things are vital to delivering good to, to doing good fan engagement and to and to having trust in your supporters. So so what you know is it chicken and egg? Is it not? Is it not that that type of issue? Is it is it? It's 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 both. You know, and and it, and it's timing related, because not every period of time in a club season, two year, three year period is the right time to assert a big cultural change. Um, sometimes it happens naturally, but you can't generalize and talk about a whole club culture because it's, it's split. What might be a good team culture might depend very much on that manager. And he might bring his group of 30 players around him, his support staff and create an incredible team culture. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that the culture in the front office and the, and the kit man and, and the supporters is good. It means that it might paper over those cracks for a little while because the team culture is very good. But that's very temporary because as soon as that manager leaves, that's all going to fall apart. So you're right in saying I think it comes over time, but it comes with every new appointment you make. Every change you make in an organisation daily, if it's changed in the right cultural concept with the right background behind it, the right research, the right weighing up of every decision, then over time, 12 months, 18 months, your culture will change. 
And that goes towards the fan engagement. It's no point setting up a great transparent communication. I'm an honest new person running your club with supporters if it only lasts for two months, because two months of work will be really well done overnight if you get it wrong. You know, you can lose that trust and that culture really quickly. So you have to accept that you're going to have hiccups. Um, a, a culture isn't black or white. You don't just build a culture, then lose it because of one mistake and have to start again. Um, you have to more often than not get it right over time. You have to forgive the errors and learn from them and explain them with supporters. We'll get it wrong. I'm sure we'll get it wrong at times. And you've got to, you've got to say to them, we've, we've gotten this wrong and this is why. And that's forgotten about. It won't be forgotten about if you're arrogant and tell them to get back in their place and that, yeah, we don't care what you say. So I'm a big believer that you've got to get your structure right straight away because you've only got a mandate for change for structure very quick, very early in a, in a new relationship. You know, if you've still got the same structure and you, you're messing around on changing that in six, eight months' time, you either think it's good and going with it or you've, you've procrastinated and, and you've gone too long. So get that structure sorted out and then that allows you to every new appointment, everyone you bring in, to be, you know, very aware of, of what the expectation are. I, I, I drive a, an above-the-line and a below-the-line culture. It's really simple. Um, and there's a reminder, posters on walls and that, what you set up. And it's just, is, is what you're doing now, is that email you're sending, is the way you're speaking to that supporter, is the way you're running around that cone at training, is it above the line? Therefore, is it, is it our standard or is it falling below it? And it's just those, that little reminder I find culturally. Um, and, and in time, I want to put that on supporters as well. Uh, you know, put, put that expectation on and with supporters. It's very hard. To, it's very easy, I'm sorry, to say, oh, our supporters behave poorly away or our supporters uh, don't like, you know, the way we do our food and beverage or whatever that is. Um, but if you're going to dare comment and criticise on the behaviour of your supporters or the image your supporters predict, project, um, if you're going to dare do that without having set the expectation and, and, and set the, the tone in the first place, I think you're kidding yourself. So if, if your supporters know what you expect from them and saying, look, do you know what? We'd really like it if you take all your trash and put it in that bin because it's going to save us a bit on cleaning at the end of the day and that's above the line behaviour for our fans and, and our supporters. It goes to the racial stuff. Our above the line behaviour is zero tolerance on any, any racial or minority sort of abuse. It's in, that's where it ends. It just it ends there. You know if you're above it or below it and it gives a very easy reference to the son with his dad or the grandparent to say, that guy over there, mate, just keep it above. Just keep it up. That's where we are. So uh, I'm a big believer in culture on that, but it does come with structure and um, they have to grow together. And um, one other area, given the, given the sort of experience you've got and um, that you've kind of seamlessly moved from one sport into another, are there, and I'm thinking really more domestically because obviously rugby league holds a slightly different position in this country, as a minority sport versus what it is in Australia. Do you see very similar themes? I mean, can be with your experience in Australia as well, obviously, but do you see very similar themes within a rugby league club as with a football club? Or are there any, are there any things within that sector, within that industry that are distinct? You know, how much, you know, how different are they or how similar are they from your experience? 
in terms in ter- again in ter- I suppose actually what I really mean here is yeah a in terms of the relationship that fans have with their clubs but b also with the way that clubs practice fan engagement with their fans football football supporters I think um, share a uh, what's the word they unfortunately uh, are generalized by the greater public and I think governments and and police and that very differently to other sports so I I think football supporters are are treated um, by the world um, due to past issues or whatever it might be in a very uh, regulatory based atmosphere from the away end segregations uh, transport police and all of that and I I feel for football supporters generally on that. Like any groups, there's minorities that mess up, but those same minority groups are messing up in rugby, rugby union, cricket as well, the races. So that's a big difference I've noticed between the sports. And there's almost a, there is a feeling, I think a lot, a lot of supporters in football have been, you know, a bit of unjust feel there. And they, they do feel a little bit threatened by that behaviour of the world towards them. They're made to feel a little bit second class for going in a group to a football game. I don't think rugby league fans suffer from that so much, if I'm honest. Um, And and that's something I I really have noticed. Um, In terms of the engagement, um, there's probably a wider group of of football fans. And it's because it's population-based. There are a lot more of them. So, you know, specifics just get magnified more and more. There is a, there are two very big splits I think in in football fans where there is that very tight knit volunteerism mentality which keeps the the game going certainly at clubs like Bradford Park Avenue and um, and here at Ebbsfleet as well um, and right through all the FA grassroots there's this huge volunteerism culture and then when you when you get to Saturdays there is seems to be a split where there are just a large group of fans who are paying their money for their entertainment like they have for 50 years and it's their traditional routine. So that that split is more obvious to me than it is in rugby league. I think most of the rugby league are much smaller demographic, um, very grassroots. They're more likely to be up at the pitch on a Thursday night, you know, or at the, at the car park taking some money for the club and doing all that. But I think it's more just based on, on the population size, if I'm honest. Um, I think, you know, they both sets of, of supporters across both clubs are, are both sports are um, hugely forgiving of their clubs generally. Um, they don't like to jump on their clubs back. You know, as a majority, I'm talking, I think fans are very, very reasonable. I think sometimes clubs, and I've probably been guilty of it in the past, if I'm honest, but I think sometimes clubs and administrators um, need to get a thick skin and just know that, you know, two or three voices having a go, on social media, that's pretty much okay. Do you know what I mean? It's, a, it's, it's just the, the, the wide majority of supporters, when you sit and have a talk to them and you give them the time to listen and answer them directly and look them in the eye, um, that's pretty much all they want and they respond really well to that. 